0: Hello, thriller and paranormal fans, and welcome to Helen Powers' The Ghosts of Thorwald Place. I am Meredith, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. I'll be introducing you to each one of our episodes of Helen Powers' Supernatural Thriller The Ghosts of Thorwald Place. If you love haunted houses, murder mysteries, and plots that twist and turn, this story is for you. The Ghosts of Thorwald Place is one of those unputdownable books that keeps you up at night, reading with a flashlight under the covers way past your bedtime. It's a book to live in. Rachel Drake is on the run from the man who murdered her husband, She settles into an apartment in a high-security building in downtown Toronto, Thorwald Place. A shut-in, she never leaves the safety of her apartment, until one night she receives a phone call that sends her running.
1: Hamcat Publishing presents The Ghosts of Thorwald Place by Helen Power Narrated by Rachel Fulgenetti For My Mother, Who Always Believed in Me One I think he's going to kill me. The voice is barely above a whisper. I grip the telephone and take a deep breath. My eyes skim across the page in front of me. I know I should use open-ended questions, but I already find myself going off script. If you believe your life is in danger, you need to call the police. No. I mean, no. I don't think my life is in danger. I frown. It's not uncommon for callers to make grand, sweeping statements about murder or conspiracies and then recant moments later but there's something different about this caller. There's something in her voice that makes me think she might have been telling the truth the first time. You can be honest with me, I say. Tell me about your husband. She pauses. Well, he's really sweet. He's handsome, generous. He buys me everything I could ever want. But he gets horrible mood swings. He gets so mad for no reason. I never know when he's going to snap. I think he's been having trouble at work, but he won't talk to me about it. I bite my lip. Has he ever hit you? The silence stretches like a yawning chasm as I wait for her next words to either topple me over the precipice or guide me safely away from the edge. No. My heart skips a beat. I don't believe her. I wouldn't even consider leaving him if it weren't for. If it weren't for. If it weren't for Shane. Who's Shane? She doesn't respond. Is Shane your son? I worry that she might hang up, but she finally answers. Yes. Has he ever hurt your son? No. My frown deepens. Is she lying? Listen, I falter. Normally, I would use a caller's name here to cement the trust I'm trying to build, but she refused to give it. I think you should call the police. I. can't. I won't. I want to push her. This might be my only chance to convince her to get help but instead I give her a list of places she can go, emphasizing the discretion of the different women's shelters that are strategically located around downtown Toronto, where she has alluded to living. You can call any time you need to talk. Ask for Rachel, and they'll connect us if I'm working, I say. I usually work a little later than this, from 12 to 4. I hear a muffled thump on the other end of the line. I have to go. He's awake. My heart leaps into my throat. I open my mouth, but I'm cut off by the dial tone. I reluctantly return the phone to its receiver, the springy cord of my vintage black telephone snapping tightly into place. I take a deep breath and arch my back, stretching my arms to the ceiling. Some, but not all, never all, of the tension releases from my body. I flip through the pages of the binder, back to the first page, ready to start the process over again. I've been volunteering at the distress line for almost 14 months now, but it never gets easier. The service helps all those in crisis, from teens who just want information about mental health programs, to the elderly who are grieving the loss of loved ones. We also get many calls about domestic abuse. Too many. Unless the caller explicitly gives us permission, or if we have reason to believe that someone's safety is in immediate danger, we aren't allowed to contact the police. Sometimes, I hate this rule. But one of the reasons people feel comfortable enough to reach out to us is because of our discretion. Still, it's hard to hang up and let go of someone who needs my help. I may never hear from this girl again. I may never know the rest of her story. I make a note on the call log, both online and in my own personal records. I put down my pen and stare at the phone for several minutes, hoping that I can compel the girl into calling back. But it's nearing the end of my four-hour shift, so I likely won't hear from her again tonight. Housebound, I volunteer for four shifts a week. Usually... I take the most unpopular shift of midnight to 4, but tonight I'm working from 8 to 12. Because of my flexible schedule, the hotline has made an exception, and I'm allowed to work from home instead of at the busy call center. Of course, I didn't tell them the real reason why I can't leave my apartment. They think I have mobility issues, which I faked during the company's mandatory therapy sessions. I was given a clean bill of mental health. (laughs) Ironic. I head into the kitchen and turn on the kettle. I grab a box of Earl Grey and drop a bag into my favorite mug. The mug is plain and brown and has a tiny chip on its lip, but it reminds me of home, and I always use this one, even though I have a dozen other mugs crammed onto the shelf. I hug my arms across my chest as I wait for the water to boil. My wool sweater does little to warm the chill that has permeated my bones. Once the tea is ready, I find myself back in my office, cradling the mug in ice-cold hands. The wall to my left bears my collection of framed, black-and-white landscape photos. The only glimpse of nature I've had in over a year. My escape from the reality of being trapped in a city I barely know. To my right are several built-in bookcases, filled with the variety of leisure and professional reading I've amassed over the two years I've lived here. I approach the floor-to-ceiling-length window, which fills the wall behind my desk. Toronto's bright city lights wink at me. Down below, the trees whip back and forth in a sharp gust of wind. Heavy rainfall drenches the pavement. Across the street are tall apartment complexes, peppered with the illuminated windows of those who cannot sleep. I sympathize with them. I haven't had a full night's sleep in two years. Instead, I take sporadic naps, giving in only whenever the exhaustion is too great to conquer. A shrill ring cuts through the silence. The mug slips from my grasp, bounces, and spills, scalding hot liquid ballooning out onto the floor, sinking deep into the rug. I hurry to my desk, leaving the cleanup for later. Hello? An automated voice greets me. This is the Toronto Distress Line. You have a caller on the line. If you are able to take this call, press 1. I take a deep breath, then press 1. Hello, this is Rachel speaking. How can I help you? I sound surprisingly serene. Rachel? The voice is strange. I cannot place my finger on what's wrong, but a sense of dread washes over me. I ignore it. Yes, you've reached the Toronto distress line. Anything you say is strictly confidential. Tell me why you called here tonight. I know where you live. K. What? How do you know that name? I swallow, my throat suddenly paper dry. I'm coming for you. Two. My chest tightens, my heart races, my breath quickens, my vision darkens, the room spins. I push away from my desk and lower my head between my legs. I take several deep breaths, clenching my fists and relaxing them in time with my inhalation. I exhale through pursed lips. Inhale, exhale. Inhale, exhale. Slowly, the crushing weight on my chest begins to lift and the fog clears. I sit up slowly and lean back in my chair. I haven't had a panic attack in almost a month. I thought I was getting better. I shake my head. Anyone would be terrified by a call like that. Although this isn't the first time it's happened. Predators enjoy making fake calls to the distress line to disturb and upset the volunteers. We always block those numbers to make it more difficult for them to enjoy this twisted pastime. But I've never had a caller who knew my name. My real name. The phone rings, and again, I nearly jump out of my skin. I don't want to answer it, but I'm glad I do. It's Luke. The words tumble out of me almost faster than I can say them, and I barely remember to breathe, I tell him everything. Everything except for the fact that the caller knew my name. Not even Luke knows my real name. No one in Toronto does, and I'd hoped to keep it that way. Are you okay? Do you need me to come over? Luke asks in a quiet voice. He knows about my fears, my paranoias, and he pretends to understand them, Even though he couldn't possibly. He doesn't know why I am this way. I never told him, and I never planned to. No, I'm fine. Really, are you sure we could binge watch Netflix like we used to? Your choice on the show, he says. Tempting, I reply. I find myself actually smiling despite the heavy feeling in the pit of my stomach. Luke is my only friend in the city. The only one that I've made in the two years I've lived here. But I haven't seen him in person for four months. I've been pushing him away. I've been retreating deeper into a prison of my own making. Luke continues. I'll bring my mace to defend you from any potential intruders and that creepy concierge. At that, I laugh. Luke is six feet tall and heavily muscled, but he carries an illegal hot pink mace with him for self defense. He's clumsy and has poor balance, and I can't help but imagine he would use it backward if he ever got into a fight. Not tonight, I say. Luke doesn't reply. The silence is deafening. I bite my lip. I want to know more about the caller but that information is classified. Instead, I try a different approach. Has this person called before? I ask, as casually as possible under the circumstances. Luke is a volunteer like me, but he mostly works behind the scenes, scheduling the volunteers and directing calls based on specific requests. He also takes shifts answering calls from time to time, usually when other volunteers flake on their commitment. Despite having a full-time job as an IT professional, he pours a lot of his free time into the hotline, and I know it's because he feels a responsibility to help others in need. I don't know the details, but he once told me that his mother never would have escaped his abusive stepfather if it hadn't been for a hotline like this one. Luke never brought it up again, and I never asked. It's better if we don't talk about our pasts and only look toward the future. Easier said than done. I don't think he's called before, Luke says. I just blocked his number. If he had called before, we would have blacklisted it earlier. Of course, he could be calling from a different phone, which is unlikely, he adds hastily. I know I shouldn't ask, but I do anyway. Do you have the caller's number? There is a pregnant pause. You know I can't give out that information. I frown. Without knowing who called me, my options are now limited to one. Run. Rach, this is just another prank call. We get them all the time. I've had three in this last week alone. You're perfectly safe, especially in your building. Thorwald Place is practically Fort Knox. He does have a point. Actually, he says, what is it? There's something unusual in the log. What is it? I repeat. I grip the armrests of my chair, my nails cutting into the well-worn brown leather. He clears his throat. Rachel, the caller asked for you specifically but like I said, I don't think he's called before. I don't respond. Of course the caller asked for me specifically, but Luke couldn't possibly know that I know because I hadn't told him that the caller used my real name. The caller's voice had been distorted as if by some kind of voice transformation app. It's possible that I know him and I just didn't recognize his voice. familiar name and face cross my mind, but I shove them away, shutting them behind a locked door in my mind. I can't afford another panic attack. I wouldn't worry about it. He's probably the angry boyfriend of one of your regulars, and he wanted to freak you out as revenge or something. He has no way of knowing who you are beyond your first name or where you are. He makes a valid point. As a distress line volunteer, you piss off a lot of ex-husbands and boyfriends, and my offer for a slumber party still stands. We can paint our nails, and I'll even let you braid my hair, Luke adds. Caught off guard, I snicker. His hair is so short, I likely wouldn't even manage a single plate. Thanks, but maybe another time, I say. I'm probably being paranoid, I just had a tough domestic abuse call, and I'm still a little shaken up. Luke is quiet for a moment. Rach, maybe you should take a few days off. I don't say anything. I mean, you volunteer with us a lot, much more than anyone else, and I don't want you to burn out. Taking calls like these can be really draining. I don't want to take time off. That would give me time to think about my own problems which I've become an expert at avoiding. I could always use the extra time for my work, but translation is a lonely business. These four-hour shifts are the only human interaction I get, and it feels good knowing that I'm helping those in crisis. It wasn't too long ago that I was in their shoes. Thanks for your concern, Luke, but I'm fine. That prank call scared me but I know it's just a one-time thing. I'll go down to the gym and work off some of this pent-up energy. Talk to you later. I hang up before he can object. I begin to pace around the office, ten long strides before I reach the wall, spin around, and repeat the process. I fitfully gnaw at my thumbnail. I still need to know who made that phone call. What Luke said might be true. An angry ex-husband could have found out my real name, and he's using it to intimidate me. But what if it's someone who knows about my past? What if it's someone from my past? I imagine a man armed with a high-powered rifle, tracking my movements from a dark apartment across the street. I'm in the crosshairs, and I can almost feel the red laser dot dancing on my forehead. I dart to the window and yank the drape shut, plunging the room into thick shadows. I stand there for several minutes, shaking, until I realize I'm standing in the spilled tea, which has gone ice cold, sinking through my socks and soaking my feet. I peel off my soiled socks and drop them in the hamper, as I head to the bathroom to grab a towel. I return to the office and mop up the tea without turning on the lights, working by the slice of pale light that slithers through the gap in the curtains. I've spent so much time being afraid, trying to avoid the dangers of the outside. Whenever I leave my apartment, I'm much more prone to panic attacks, which leave me helpless and exposed. The last time I left the safety of Thorwald Place, something spooked me, and my panic attack was so intense, I passed out. Somebody must have called an ambulance, but fortunately, I woke up before it arrived and was able to get out of there without anyone asking me any questions. But I haven't left this building since, not for nine months. I cannot afford to be that vulnerable, not when he's still out there. I'm being ridiculous. I've been so careful. He can't have found me. For all I know, the caller didn't even say my name, K, short for Kayla. He could have been saying the letter K, like how some people tack on an A to everything they say. Maybe this caller shortens the word OK. I take several deep breaths, taking solace in the rhythmic movements of scrubbing the floor. After I've finished, I dump the filthy towel in the hamper. I stride across my large living room, past the bookcases that overflow with books, and the couch that sits opposite a flat screen TV that I hardly ever turn on. I hesitate by the front door. Slowly, I put my eye to the peephole. I see a long expanse of empty hallway. The dim overhead light casts stark shadows on the sloped, maroon, wallpapered walls, and in the deep depression of the doorways at the end of the corridor. The polished marble floors reflect the faint light back up at me. My apartment is closest to the elevator. I chose this one so I would have the quickest escape route. On the seventh floor of this ten-story building, I'm too high for someone to climb onto my balcony but not so high that I can't flee down the stairs if I have to. From my peephole, I can see everyone who comes off the elevator and recognize if it's someone who isn't supposed to be on this floor. If they loiter for too long, I call security. I used to linger in the foyer of my apartment, standing guard at the door any time the elevator ding announced that someone was getting off. I've been getting better... And now, I only check a dozen times a day, usually when the concierge is making a delivery or if a noise in the hall spooks me. When I realized that I had to run and leave my old life in Ottawa behind, my cop friend, Catalina, helped me set up an airtight new identity. And it was she who found me this safe haven. Thorwald Place. The condos are spacious especially for Toronto, with only seven units per floor. The mortgage is high and the condo fees even higher, but it's worth the chunk out of my paycheck and inheritance, if only for the impressive security measures put in place. It is impossible for someone to get in unless they have explicit permission from a resident. There's 24-hour surveillance, and the security guards actually graduated from the police academy but chose this line of work for the higher salary. Despite my vigilance, I don't know many of the occupants of Thorwald Place. Most of the inhabitants are multi-millionaires, which, in my experience, usually leads to snobbishness. I don't mind. I've never had any intention of getting to know my neighbors. A socialite named Sabrina Highland attempted to befriend me when I first moved in. She thought a single woman working from home would be the perfect drinking companion. However, I made it abundantly clear that I had no intention of being friendly with any of the neighbors, and eventually she gave up. While I sometimes find myself craving companionship, I can't run the risk of someone getting to know me too well, noticing the gaps in what I've told them about my past, and beginning to suspect that I'm not who I claim to be. Luke began to ask questions, which was one of the reasons why I had to distance myself from our friendship. The authentic German cuckoo clock over the mantel chimes, informing me that it's already quarter to one. I've spent over 45 minutes in a frenzy over a phone call that probably means nothing. It's great to note that my mental health is improving. Dr. Favreau would be so pleased. I need to get out of the apartment. I need to prove to myself that I'm not a frightened child. I stride into the bedroom to change into my gym clothes. I like to work out at night, between midnight and five. The building's fitness center is open 24-7, but I rarely see anyone down there in the dead of night. Occasionally, I encounter a skinny 20-year-old... But he sticks with the weights, and I go to the other side of the room for the treadmill. He's very pale, and large purple bruises circle his sunken eyes. I suspect he uses exercise to deal with his insomnia. I open my dresser drawer and stare at its contents for so long that I have to shake my head to pry myself away. Whether or not I'm being irrational is beside the point. The caller said a word that sounds like my name. I can't stay in this building a minute longer. I have to run. I dart into my walk-in closet to grab my duffel bag. I should have prepared a pre-packed getaway bag. Why hadn't I thought of that before this very moment? Working in darkness, too afraid to turn on the light, I load the bag up with the bare essentials. Underwear, shirts, pants. I duck into the bathroom and return with my toothbrush. I hesitate, then add more underwear to the bag before zipping it shut. I head into my office to grab my passport, IDs, and a wad of cash, both Canadian and American. I root around in my desk drawer for my diary. Where is it? I slam the top drawer shut and check the bottom drawer. It isn't there either. It's one of the only things I have left of my past, and I can't bear the thought of leaving it behind. I haven't written an entry since moving to Toronto, and I know I keep it in my desk, where I sometimes retrieve it when I'm feeling masochistic and want to remind myself of the horrors of my past. It isn't here. Disappointment weighs on my chest as I realize I'll have to leave without it. I haven't any more time to waste. I run to the front door, the bag slung over my shoulder. Once again, I peer through the peephole. Sometimes, I plan what I would do if I see an eyeball staring back at me, or the barrel of a gun. I would jerk back and flatten myself against the wall, stick my keys between my knuckles as a weapon. I unlock the deadbolt, slide the chain, and slowly open the door. The hall is silent, and the dim light reveals both sides of the hallway. I shut the door behind me and lock it. I pull the handle three times to make sure it's locked, not just stuck. I race to the elevator, punching the button several times in quick succession. I wonder if I'm being irrational, but I've never been able to be objective not when it comes to my safety. Either way, I'm proud of the action I've taken. Only a month ago, a call like that would have rendered me immobile for weeks. But instead of cowering in the corner of my apartment, waiting for my death, I'm taking charge of my life. I'll get out of the building, find a cheap hotel, and pay cash for the night. Then I'll call Catalina, my closest friend from my past life, And she'll help me find a new place to settle down. Or, at the very least, she'll look into the phone call. She'll figure out if it's a false alarm. Or if he's found me. The elevator arrives and the doors slide open. Empty. I slip in. I press B. The elevator descends. It moves slow. So slow. Too slow. I take a deep breath and my pulse drops back down to the double digits. I continue to breathe deliberately as I watch the numbers gradually change as the elevator passes each floor. A sense of calm washes over me. I'm finally leaving. This is the first time I've taken control of my life since my husband died. I push away all thoughts of him. I can't afford to break down, not when I'm so vulnerable. I bite my lip. I'm far from safe. My car has been parked in the basement-level garage for nine months. It's been nine months since I last drove it. What if it doesn't start? What if... Darkness envelops me. A loud grating sound erupts from the cabling above. And the elevator lurches to a stop. Silence. Blinded, I feel my way to the elevator panel and find the call button. Hello? I try to keep my voice calm. Can anyone hear me? The elevator shut down. Nothing. I push it again. But there's nothing. No dial tone. No soothing voice on the other end. This time, I press the alarm button, but no siren emits. Shouldn't there be a siren? I can't tell if it's working. Has the concierge been notified? Is security on their way? I punch buttons at random. Hysteria bubbles up, threatening to break through the surface. No, I cannot afford to have a panic attack. I take several deep breaths. In through my nose, out through my mouth. Again. My head clears, and I lean my feverish forehead against the cold, gray steel of the elevator wall. There was a weather alert on the news tonight. The power is out because of the storm. That's all this is. But shouldn't the elevator have a backup mechanism for an emergency? I should have researched this myself before moving into this building. I should have had a packed getaway bag at the ready. And I would have been out of the elevator before the power outage. I should have taken the stairs. I should have prepared for this. I hold my breath and listen carefully. I definitely don't hear any sirens. Or anything at all, for that matter. The elevator is deathly silent. Except for the thumping of my heart. It was around the third floor when the power went out. I drop my bag against the far wall of the elevator and assess the exit. Slipping my fingers into the crack between the doors, I pull with all my strength. It opens half an inch. I peer through, but I can't see anything, just a void. A cool breeze slips through the crack, caressing my cheek and carrying the faint smell of something rotten. I pull again, and the doors slide apart more easily, over a foot this time. The elevator is between floors. I can see the corridor's marble floor barely at chin level. I just need another foot of space, and then I can squeeze through. Before I can wrench the doors open farther, bright light washes over me. Life returns to the elevator, and the doors calmly slide shut. I cover my eyes, suffering an instant migraine as the light saturates my retinas. The elevator continues its descent as if nothing were out of the ordinary. I shake with relief that I hadn't attempted to climb out of the elevator or I would have been severed in half, my blood cascading down the doors, like in The Shining. A voice in the back of my head chastises me. What am I doing? Should I even be leaving the building? The reason I chose this condo was for the high security. If I leave it, I could be walking straight into danger. The elevator stops. The doors slide open revealing an empty hall, the basement. I don't know what to do. Should I leave? Should I stay? Should I go to the lobby and find the security guards and demand that they let me stay with them until morning? I shake my head. That's not a long-term solution. I sigh, turning around to pick up my duffel bag. I never get a chance to grab it. Strong hands wrap around me, gripping me tight and covering my mouth before I can scream. I bite down hard, but my assailant is wearing thick leather gloves, and I don't even break the skin. I jab an elbow backward, but he dodges it with ease. I kick my heel, and it connects with a shin. He exhales sharply and loosens his grip just enough so that his hand is no longer smothering my face. I open my mouth and gulp down cold air. I'm ready to scream, but something cold and sharp tears across my throat, slicing me open from ear to ear. I don't even manage a whimper. Warmth pours down my chest. Streams of crimson spray the walls, erupting from my throat like a geyser. The hands release me, and shove my body against the wall. I land with a thud. My ice-cold fingers claw at my throat, but my hands are too small, too weak to contain the torrents of blood. Footsteps lead away, as my killer leaves me to die alone. But I'm not alone. I fall to my knees, my vision fading as I struggle to inhale coughing on the metallic taste of my own blood. Darkness gathers in my peripheral vision, and I turn to face it. The shadows twist and writhe and collect to form the silhouette of a man with no face. He hunches over, his arms outstretched. I die before he reaches me. it takes forever for someone to find my body at six the elevator is called to the fourth floor and an early riser greets the sight of my body with a shrill scream he stumbles backward clutching his briefcase to his chest i get the impression that he's never discovered a grisly crime scene before i on the other hand am enveloped in the cool indifference that seems to accompany death. He staggers back to his apartment, shrieking hysterically all the way. Several of his neighbors rush out into the hall. Each person is in various stages of undress. A pregnant woman wearing a silk bathrobe and only one slipper. A man whose face is coated in shaving cream, save for a single bare strip down his left cheek the look of horror on their faces would have been amusing if I were in the mood for dark humor. The elevator doors slide shut, and I am launched to another floor, where I startle another early commuter. The elevator doors close on the stunned woman's face, lurching toward its next stop. I am destined for repetition. Perhaps this is hell. The police finally arrive call the elevator to the ground floor, and put it out of service. I have now informally met a quarter of the building's occupants, which is more than I met in the two years I lived here. A handful of police officers form a perimeter, trying to block the sight of my corpse from the prying eyes of my nosy neighbors. I hover by the elevator door as forensic investigators get to work examining my corpse, I try not to watch, disgusted by the sight of my limp body, which is coated in blood that has begun to cake. But the process is mesmerizing. The flash of cameras, the murmur of voices, and the hypnotic movement of pencils as they scribble in pristine white notebooks. The forensic experts step gingerly around the scene, careful not to disturb anything, as they scrutinize my body from all angles. As they work, I can't stop staring at my face. My eyes are still open and glazed over with a milky white sheen. My skin is nearly white, a shocking contrast to the deep crimson gash across my neck. My lips are parted in a soundless scream. A forensic investigator in a white bodysuit steps in front of me, Cutting off my view. Relief floods through me, and I turn away before the sight of my own corpse enthralls me once again. I know I gained consciousness only minutes after my death, because blood was still dripping where the arterial spray arched across the walls, looking as if an artist had decided to add a splash of color to the monochromatic gray. I was reluctant to leave my body but I had no idea what else to do. I had no moment of shock, no moment of revelation where I realized I was dead. I knew it from the instant I opened my eyes and saw the world from the other side. A world which looks different in death. Everything is a little grayer, a little faded. Voices and sounds have a slight echo, It's as though I'm experiencing everything through a thin film, some indescribable substance that separates the world of the living from mine. But why am I still here? My body has been found. The police are clearly investigating. It won't take long for them to figure out it was he who killed me. I leave the elevator and glance around the lobby. I don't see any obvious doorways or bright lights to follow. How will I know where to go? I bite back the pang of disappointment when I realize that none of my lost loved ones are here to welcome me. No husband, no parents, no Grumple Stiltskin, my childhood dog. Where are they? And how do I find my way to them? I'm self aware enough to know that I've always feared the unknown, and it's obvious that this hasn't changed in death. Instead of searching for my escape, I stay locked in place, eyes glued to the crime scene investigators. After what feels like an eternity, the medical examiner deposits my body into a black bag and wheels it out of the building. I begin to follow. Maybe if I slip back into my body, I'll awaken and everyone will laugh like this was all just one big misunderstanding. I'll spend the rest of my days wearing a scarf, elegantly positioned to hide my gaping neck wound like the girl in that urban legend. I slam into an invisible wall about a dozen feet from the elevator. Slightly disoriented, I shake my head. I press forward. Again, I'm stopped by an imperceptible force. I reach out, and my hand flattens midair. I run my hand along this invisible barrier, but it seems to run as high as I can reach and down to the marble floor. I follow the barrier, tracing my hand along it. It cuts across the entire lobby, but not in a straight line. It's slightly curved. Beyond the wall... I can see the medical examiner exit the building with my body, leaving my soul behind. I slam a hand against the invisible wall once again, but there's no give. My attention is drawn by the sound of a familiar grating voice. Elias Strickland, the concierge, is speaking with a police officer who looks like he's desperate to leave. The invisible wall can wait. I approach the pair to eavesdrop. We have excellent security here, Elias says. His perpetually nasal voice is exacerbated by the tears that stream down his face. How could this have happened? My residents will want an explanation immediately. We have someone reviewing the security footage of the exits. If the killer left the building, we'll have them on film. The police officer says, If... They left the building? Are you saying they might still be here? Elias tugs at his cheap tie. The killer might still be in the building. I look around and notice for the first time that the residents aren't allowed to simply leave. Police officers guard the front door, questioning each individual before they allow them to go to work, or to the spa, or to do whatever they think is more important than mourning my death. What can you tell me about the victim, Ms. Rachel Ann Drake, the police officer asks. Well, Elias runs a hand through his thinning brown hair. She is, was, an odd one. She rarely spoke to anyone. She kept to herself. I think I was her only friend in the building. I stare at him, just now realizing that the tears streaming down his face are for me. I feel a pang of guilt. I've never considered us friends. I interact with him once every few weeks, only when I have mail to pick up or complaints about the security guards. Elias continues. She even had her groceries delivered. I haven't seen her leave the building in months. The police officer suddenly looks interested. He pulls a small wire-bound notebook from his pocket and uncaps his pen. Do you think it's possible that she may have been hiding from someone? Possibly. She was always really interested in the security in the building. Like, that was the main reason why she moved here, not the fabulous party room or the services that I provide as concierge. I wince in pity as he says the word with a dreadful French accent. He should have picked a line of work that he could pronounce. Did she have any visitors? There was a man who used to come around, but I haven't seen him in a few months, Elias says. At the police officer's prompting, he continues on to describe him. I realize he's talking about Luke. The police officer asks a few follow-up questions, and I'm surprised by just how much Elias knows. He knows the date and time of my weekly grocery deliveries— that once every couple of weeks I'll treat myself to pizza delivered from the greasy place down the street, and that I get a haul of books delivered every time BMV Books has a sale. Well, if you think of anything else, please contact us immediately. I peer over the police officer's shoulder to look at the scribbles in his notebook, but he's used a shorthand that I can't decipher. A nearly identical police officer emerges from the security office holding a flash drive. He glances at the concierge, then turns to his partner and begins speaking rapid French. The video doesn't show anybody leaving the building between 1 and 2 this morning, but apparently there was a power outage for about five minutes, and the killer could have left during that window. No, that power outage happened before I died. The power came back and then he killed me. I blink and glance around. I hadn't thought I'd be able to speak. It makes no difference. Neither police officer reacts to the sound of my voice. I look at Elias, but he's watching the officers intently. I turn my attention to the rest of the people milling about, but none of them seem to have heard me either, but I'm not yet discouraged. I approach the pot-bellied man standing the closest to the crime scene tape. He cranes his neck to see into the elevator. There's nothing to see here, I shout into his face. He doesn't react. I try to shake him, but my hands fall through his fleshy body. I feel nothing, no chill, no warmth, as I slide my hands through him. I examine his face, but it's clear that he doesn't sense me in the slightest. I strategically progress through the lobby, shouting at each bystander, attempting to reach them through any means. I try everything I can remember having seen in movies about ghosts, from waving my hands through their heads to shouting obscenities in their ears. No one reacts. No one so much as shivers. I'm angry, disappointed, and beginning to feel helpless. I brace myself, preparing to do my calming breathing technique, but there are no symptoms of a panic attack. My body is overcome by the numbness of being incorporeal. I could get used to this. I suppose I'll have to. I glance around, noticing that the police officers have long gone, and they've been replaced by a cleaning crew of four burly men who are crammed into the elevator. They've already bleached the walls in an attempt to remove all trace of my messy execution. The lobby is nearly empty now. Only Elias stands at his station, compulsively wringing his hands in between fielding calls from curious residents and the media. I survey the expansive, high-ceilinged lobby. Unlike the rest of the building, it was designed with the sole purpose of impressing visitors. The floors are marble, polished to near perfection. The wallpaper is a pale blue with gold foil accents in the shape of falling leaves. A hefty, ornate clock is the only decoration on the stretch of the wall across from the front desk. There are two wing chairs and a sofa positioned underneath it. It serves as a sort of waiting area. Though in my two years living in this building, I've never seen a single person sitting out here. I can only access half of the lobby, so I need to find a way around this invisible barrier. I approach the elevator and look down the hall to the right. I tentatively step through the wall. I'm in the guest suite that's reserved for visitors of building residents. The bed is neatly made, with the corners of the bedspread tucked tightly. There's a lounge area sparsely decorated with cool tones. A gray leather couch is angled toward an impressively sized TV. The room is windowless, but a single painting of a blue sky over a grassy field hangs on the wall opposite the door, creating the illusion of something beyond. I stride across the plain gray rug and easily pass through this wall as well. I'm in the ground-level parking garage which is located below the building. I continue to walk until I slam against the barrier. It doesn't hurt, but it's disorienting. I place my hand on the barrier and follow it around until I reach the wall 20 feet from where I entered. The barrier is clearly circular. Is it meant to keep me contained? I shake my head at that thought. Then I continue to follow the barrier through the wall out of the garage, and into the library. With gorgeous oak-paneled walls and towering bookshelves, the building's library is quite a sight to behold. The leather couches look comfortable, with antique copper lamps strategically positioned between them. I've been down here several times over the last two years, but I never dawdle. I usually grab a handful of books and hurry back upstairs to the safety of my apartment where I can actually relax and enjoy my reading. I walk through the room divider into the party area. The dim overhead lights reveal a bar in the corner, which is framed by tall mirrors, making the room seem larger than it actually is. I scan the rest of the room. Circular tables are set up around a polished dance floor. I quickly hit another barrier only a few feet into the room. I follow this barrier clockwise until I've made an entire lap of the enclosure. I was right. It is a circle. There are no breaks or gaps in the wall, nothing I can slip through to escape. What is this barrier? Who put it here? I have so many questions and no one to answer them. Back in the lobby, the cleaning crew has finished their sterilization of the elevator. A starchy-looking woman stands in Elias's face, complaining loudly about the inconvenience of having only one operating elevator. I'm glad that my death is nothing more than a disruption to her busy life. Shouldn't she be disturbed that a brutal murder occurred hours ago in that very elevator? That the killer hasn't even been caught hell she should be worried that it's haunted she spins on her heel and leaves a bedraggled elias in her wake she scowls at the cleaners who are gathering their supplies and politely averting their eyes from her shrewd gaze she presses the elevator button and boards the other one which was already idling on this floor she didn't even have to wait five seconds I'd love to see what a convenient elevator experience is like for her. After she's left, Elias tips the cleaners and reactivates the elevator. The doors slide shut, as if sealing my fate. A man in snug jogging shorts strolls into the building, salutes Elias, and heads to the elevators. Elias nods and returns to his station. I decide to head over toward him to see what exactly he keeps behind the desk. It lies just beyond the invisible wall, so I might be able to see what he always stares at so intently on his computer. Just as I reach the edge of the invisible barrier, a powerful sensation of vertigo overcomes me. My skin begins to crawl. I stare down at my arms in astonishment, My entire body is vaporizing, shredding into a million pieces, wisps of flesh fading into the world around me. I squeeze my eyes shut tightly, willing the end to come quickly. 4. Just as soon as I think I might actually die, not just my body, but also my soul, numbness engulfs me. I pry open my eyes. I'm back in the elevator, which is climbing so very slowly. The jogger is doing lunges less than two feet from where my body lay this morning. Doesn't he know what happened here? Or maybe he just doesn't care? He had to have been questioned by the police. He must have been told. The elevator dings and he steps out onto the eighth floor. The doors drift shut behind him. I wait, but the elevator idles. I float through the door and glance around. Why didn't my invisible barrier keep me from climbing the floors? I bite my lip, and I'm surprised to realize that I feel it, although it doesn't feel quite the same as when I was alive. There's a dullness to it. I suppose this is a good thing. I still have some sensations despite being nothing but a walking shadow. But I'd felt extreme pain when my body vaporized, and I was torn back to the elevator when it began to move, as if it has some sort of magnetic hold on me. That was the first true sensation I've experienced since I died. I begin to pace the hall in front of the elevator, and I can't help but notice that my feet don't quite touch the ground. I walk down the hallway to the edge of my enclosure, about twenty feet from the elevator door. The invisible wall is still there, still containing me, still taunting me with the sight of what lies beyond, what is just out of reach. The invisible barrier must have traveled with the elevator. The elevator is at the center of my strange circular prison, and when it moves— So does my personal purgatory. I wait on the floor for ten, twenty minutes, but the elevator doesn't move again. Across the hall from the elevators, there is an oak console table with a bouquet of fake flowers resting on top. There is one just like it on every floor. But it isn't the flowers that catch my attention. It's the gold-framed oval mirror hanging on the wall above it. I approach it slowly. I know what my dead body looked like, but I'm not sure I want to know what my spirit looks like. I stand in front of the mirror, taking a moment to gather the courage to look. My eyes linger on the fake flowers, examining the thin coat of dust that clings to the rose petals. I finally look up. The view of the elevator doors behind me is unobstructed in the mirror. I stand there for a moment, both relieved and disappointed. I don't have a reflection. I look down at my hands, turning them over. They don't even look transparent to me. I study my once-gray wool sweater that is soaked with my blood. I can see myself, but I don't have a reflection. I turn back around and stare at the elevator I'm tethered to, I can't erase the image of my corpse's vacant eyes from my memory. I need to forget. On a whim, I step through the wall adjacent to the elevator. I'm in a living room that is sparsely decorated with plain, bleached white furniture. It looks like an advertisement in an Ikea catalog, but without the flash of flavor that lures buyers to their warehouses. There are no decorations, No colors except for a bright red painting of a field of poppies that hangs above the electric fireplace. The splash of red cuts harshly against the bland room, bringing to mind the sight of my bloodied corpse. The bloody gash. My ashen face. My cloudy eyes. Perhaps it's a good thing I can't see my spirit. I don't know if I could bear knowing what I look like. I quickly tear my gaze away. My eye is caught by the sight of a collection of black picture frames, which are purposefully positioned on the lid of a grand piano, the only hint of personality in the otherwise lackluster room. Curious, I approach the photographs. The frames are eclectic-looking, all black but different styles and made of different materials. I shift my attention to the photographs. One is a graduation photo, depicting a proud father with his arm wrapped around his daughter's shoulders. Another picture shows a young couple kissing on the beach, a golden retriever frolicking in a watery backdrop. A group of friends are having a movie night, eating popcorn and laughing at something off camera. A pair of twin brothers climb an old oak tree, laughing and smiling as they swing from branch to branch like monkeys. All the pictures are candid, cheerful, and filled with a vivacity that is missing from the rest of the room. A chill creeps up my spine. These are all pictures of different people. There's no common face peppered across the photos. I step in closer. The photograph dimensions are clearly visible in the corner of every picture. These are not pictures of someone's friends and family. These are the pictures that the frames came with. A small thud resounds from another room. I jump back guiltily, whipping around. Then I remember that no one can see me. I may be trespassing, but no one will ever know. I try to ignore the heaviness in my chest. A second thud pulls my thoughts back to the present. Uncertain of what my revelation about the pictures means, I cautiously follow the source of the sound, my old friend Dread back at my side like he never left. Thud! I stand in the second doorway off the hall. The room is empty except for a lone figure sitting in the corner of the room. The room bears no adornments, no furniture, nothing other than a battered brown rocking chair nothing but stark white walls and a slender woman clad in gray. Thud. The woman herself has barely moved. The faint sound comes from the rocking chair, which is slowly rocking, thumping against the bare wall. A small impression defaces the wall where the wood connects. Thud. The woman stares out the window. Her eyes are empty dead. I look down at her hands. She wears a modest gold wedding ring, and her white-knuckled fists clutch something tightly. I can't tell what it is, but I catch a flash of red between her fingers. I inch forward, but I'm halted by the invisible barrier. I am both relieved and disappointed. I need to get closer. I want to run away, but I can't. I have to understand. Thud. But even if I can understand her pain, I can't help her. I can't help anyone. Not anymore. Thought. June 14th Dear Diary, This is my story. My best friend bought me this diary as an early wedding gift, and I promised her I'd use it. I was reluctant at first, but she convinced me that writing in a diary is beneficial, cheaper than a therapist, and much more entertaining. Also, she had it engraved with my full name, Kayla D. Archer, so it's not like I can re-gift it. I have no delusions that I'll write in this every single day, but I'll try to make at least a few entries a month. Things are pretty hectic at work, and I'm trying to get all my projects tied up before the wedding. Then, after the wedding, I'll likely be busy doing other things. The wedding. (laughs) Where to begin? Of course, the band canceled at nearly the last minute, but it was Jay's idea to have a live band, not mine. I always wanted a DJ blasting some hits from the 60s and 70s, which is something his family would love. I pretended to be disappointed for his benefit, but I had already booked a backup DJ on the off chance that I could change his mind. Everything else seems to be on schedule. My maid of honor, Cindy, has taken care of everything. She's much more wedding crazed than me, and she's obsessed with all those reality shows like Amazing Wedding Cakes and Say Yes to the Dress. Me? I know the names of the shows, but that's about it. When I first asked her to be my maid of honor, she rushed home to get her stacks of wedding planning books and magazines. I seriously think she missed her calling in life and that being a bank teller isn't fulfilling her need for puffy dresses and decadent cakes. Anyway, everything is going according to plan. There was a minor setback when the florist called and said she wouldn't be able to get the exact right shade of blue for the flowers for the table centerpieces, I didn't care because I honestly couldn't tell the difference between the two colors. Cindy went into hysterics, and it took all night and a full pint of mint chocolate chip ice cream to calm her down. I don't know what will happen when it's time for her wedding. She might actually have a mental breakdown, and the ceremony will have to be held in a padded cell. At least, straitjackets are white. I would have been fine without a wedding. Just a quick trip to the courthouse followed by a lengthy trip to the Bahamas. But I was naive, and I decided that a wedding wouldn't be too much of a hassle, and it would make our family and friends happy. It's the honeymoon I'm more excited about. I'm a little embarrassed to admit that I spent more time searching for resorts in tropical climates than I did picking out a wedding dress, cake tasting, or venue hunting combined— although my dress is gorgeous, and it's definitely something that I would have missed if we had just signed papers at the courthouse. I can't admit this to anyone, but I'll be glad when the whole business is over and I'm sinking my toes into the toasty sand on the beach and sipping strong margaritas at the Sandals Resort. I love to travel, and I don't get to do it nearly often enough because of my busy work schedule— and the fact that my boss assigns me twice as many projects as the other junior translators. But of course, my boss had to give me time off for my honeymoon for fear that one of his best employees would quit. Not that I threatened him, but I heavily implied that I had employment options elsewhere. Jay and I are getting married on the eighth month anniversary of the day we met. I'm feeling nostalgic, so I'm going to recount the story here. Let me set the stage for you. The day was October 20th. It was an overcast autumn day, and there was a gentle drizzle outside the kitchen window. My roommate Catalina and I were playing Scrabble at the kitchen table. Of course, I was winning. Catalina made her word, bird, and I was pleased to see that she didn't block my spot. Without even waiting for her to refill her tiles, I put out my word, jerk which landed on the triple word score. Catalina didn't look surprised. Why do I even bother playing with you, Kay? She rolled her eyes and took a deep sip of her Diet Pepsi. Lon Chaney Jr., my brown domestic longhair, stared at her from his perch on the kitchen counter with a look of disdain mixed with boredom. He barely tolerated Catalina, despite her best attempts to win him over with catnip and crinkly toys. Catalina started to count up the score as I ate a big spoonful of vanilla yogurt. The J is on the double letter tile, I told her. Mm Mm-hmm. And since I added the K to pin, that means that word gets tripled, too. Mm Mm-hmm, she frowned. That's 99 points, I shouted. I jumped up and began to dance, knocking my yogurt over the board. Catalina snorted, Diet Pepsi spraying out of her nostrils in a fine mist. We both erupted into giggles, startling Lon Chaney, Jr., who jumped down from his perch and hid under the kitchen table. Catalina left to change her shirt, which was soaked. I rummaged around in the kitchen drawer looking for an old hand towel, not wanting to ruin our only good one. A strange gurgling sound came from the kitchen table, I spun around and saw Lon Chaney Jr. on the table, licking Scrabble tiles. No, Lon Chaney Jr., get down, I said in a stern voice. He looked at me, then swallowed. No, I rushed over to him and pulled him away from the board. Catalina ran into the room, topless. I pried open Lon Chaney Jr.'s mouth, but the tile was gone. I surveyed the board. He ate three tiles. Don't panic, Catalina said, her eyes wide with panic. Let's get him to the vet. She bolted from the room. I jogged after her. She grabbed the car keys and swung open the front door. Put on a shirt, I screamed. Astonished, Catalina looked down, then raced out of the room. I always joke with her that it's a good thing that she did put on a shirt before we left or Jay would be marrying her instead of me. We got to the animal hospital in record time, where Lon Chaney Jr. was immediately rushed into emergency surgery. The veterinary technician said that if he were a bigger cat, they could have possibly induced vomiting, but Lon Chaney Jr. is no wolfman, and the tiles were wedged in his tiny esophagus. I paced the waiting room relentlessly until a veterinarian came out to see me. Is he okay? I asked. The vet was tall with dark wavy hair. A look of polite concern was etched into his handsome features. He'll be fine, he said. We successfully removed the tiles, but he's still unconscious from the anesthesia. Are you sure you got all the tiles? There were three missing, a J, a K, and a blank tile, I said, wringing my hands together. The vet smiled slightly. There were three tiles, but I didn't check the letters. I stared at him. Your cat. What's his name? He looked down at the clipboard and raised an eyebrow. Lon Chaney Jr. is going to be perfectly fine. I took in a deep breath and then let it out. Now, will you be requiring the Scrabble tiles back? He said, an impish grin transforming his face. I found I couldn't look away. Of course, I replied, the J and K tiles have high value. It was a few weeks later, after our fourth dinner date and subsequent sleepover, that we realized the significance of the Scrabble tiles. Lon Chaney Jr. ate a J and a K, and our couple name immediately became J and K. I never told Jay that the word that Lon Chaney Jr. ate was Jerk. I fear that this might ruin the meat cute story. I've always wondered about the significance of the blank tile. Clearly, Lon Chaney Jr. is psychic, assuming, of course, that the tiles he ate have nothing to do with the fact that they bore the brunt of the yogurt spill and were the closest to the edge of the table. Maybe the blank tile represents the future, the endless possibilities of where our life together might lead or maybe it represents an unknown element, a person or event that will change our lives forever. 5. Rush hour has an entirely new meaning to me now. I'm pulled up and down by the elevator as residents return home from their productive lives. Up and down, up and down. I can't help but resent the freedom they have the ability to come and go as they please. I didn't even have that when I was alive, and I most certainly do not have that now. I spent the last day and a half exploring my prison. However, during rush hour, I lose even that tiny luxury. Anytime I step out onto a floor, I am yanked back into the elevator for another ride. Fortunately, the vertigo is not as terrible as it was the first time, Either that or I'm just getting used to it. During off-peak hours, I run crude calculations, and this morning, I made an afterlife-changing discovery. It appears that my prison is not only round, but it's a sphere. I can drop down to the floor below where the elevator idles, and I can also float upwards to the floor above. My range on these floors is not nearly as great but it's nice to know that my prison isn't as small as I'd originally thought. When the elevator is on any given floor, my enclosure has a circumference of approximately 125 feet. I can travel 15 feet into the northern and western apartments. But because of the second elevator, I can only go 10 feet into the eastern apartment. I initially avoided going into the condos, especially after observing the hypnotic melancholy of the woman with no past. That's what I've started calling her in my mind. But there isn't much entertainment in the hallways of an upper-class condominium. Most of the action happens inside the units. Of course, not everyone within my range is noteworthy, which I have discovered very quickly. I'm currently on the sixth floor and within my range is Sabrina Highland, the socialite who attempted to befriend me when I first moved in, a conventional couple with an unconventional son, and a German man who is shouting loudly on the telephone. His face is beet red, and he gestures ineffectually toward the disembodied voice that comes from the speaker. I don't speak German, so I quickly leave his apartment. I make a mental note. Depending on how long I'm stuck in this limbo, I might enjoy learning another language. Although, from the sound of it, I would likely only learn words that I shouldn't repeat. Sabrina's husband, Roger, has just gotten home from work. It's late, almost seven. Sabrina is in the dining room, wearing a chic black dress. Her salon-colored blonde hair is styled in a loose chignon. Her only accessory is a set of tasteful diamond earrings. The cherry oak dining room table is set for dinner, with full place settings for two. A pair of slender gold candles accentuates the center of the table, and the overhead lights are dimmed for ambiance. Sabrina follows her husband into the bedroom. Where are you going? Her voice is surprisingly placid. Had I made a dinner like that for Jay when he... Or, I were still alive, I would have been furious if he'd canceled. Although I couldn't cook to save my life, so that issue never came up. I have dinner with a client, Roger says. He steps out of the bedroom into the hallway, back into my line of sight. He has changed his tie and applied more gel to his already impeccable hair. Ten years her senior, Sabrina's husband is still handsome. Age has given his face rugged lines that are attractive on men, but unfavorable on women. Sabrina is an aging trophy wife, just past her best-before date. I look back at the dinner. Sabrina has painstakingly prepared. I can tell it's been sitting out for a while. Sabrina must not have known when her husband was coming home. Sabrina pours a tall glass of the Chateau Ponte Canet wine and takes a deep sip I made dinner. I slaved over the stove for hours. And you couldn't call to say you wouldn't be home on time? She waves her glass in the air as she speaks. I cringe, expecting wine to slosh onto her husband's fine-tailored suit. I mentioned it to you yesterday morning. Was I asleep? As senior partner, I can't be expected to have consistent work hours. You know that, Sabrina. Right. Because your hard work is so appreciated. Weren't you overlooked for managing partner? Roger's smile becomes strained. He turns to walk away, but he stops by the dining room and takes a sniff. Beef bourguignon. It smells good. Maybe I can heat some up when I get home? Sabrina takes the plate from the head of the table, strides to the kitchen, and dumps its contents into the trash. She then proceeds to pour herself another glass of wine. I follow her into the kitchen. In this close proximity, I can see the rage that burns behind her frosty blue eyes. Roger doesn't move closer, but I can see that darkness has clouded his expression. I see you're drinking already. He makes a show of checking his Rolex. Well, I guess it's after five. Might as well get started. Sabrina's fury drains like flour through a sieve. She gazes down into her glass. I never stopped, she says under her breath. Roger doesn't seem to hear her confession. He storms out the front door and slams it shut behind him. Sabrina downs the rest of her glass. She goes to refill it, but the bottle is empty. She glares at the bottle for a moment. Then she sways from the room to find more. I remain in the kitchen, staring at the empty bottle. Sabrina had always seemed so friendly and energetic. She'd emanated a nearly irresistible charm that I thought any man would be happy to claim as his own. Even I had a hard time pushing her away, and that had been about me, not her. I'd assumed she had plenty of friends and other neighbors to spend time with and that she wouldn't miss my company. I frown as guilt slithers its way into my chest. It's clear to me now that her life isn't as idyllic as I'd thought. The room fades to black as I'm torn back into the elevator. Roger stands beside me, staring straight ahead, a frown marring his handsome features. The elevator stops at the ground floor. He gets off, but he doesn't head to the exit. Instead, he swerves left and walks down the corridor. He stops outside the guest suite and glances around the lobby. Satisfied that he's alone, he turns and raps gently on the door. It swings open immediately. A young, red-haired man greets him. Are you ready for our business dinner? Roger asks. I frown. There's something off about his tone. I thought we'd eat in the younger man says with a smirk. He grips Roger's tie and pulls him into the room, kicking the door firmly shut behind them. I stare at the closed door. How could Roger do this to his wife? How could he? In the same building? No wonder Sabrina seemed so desperate, so angry, so helpless. She's trapped in an impossible situation. I wish I had known when I was alive. Then maybe I could have done something. Would I have done something? I suppose I'll never know. Rage courses through me. I storm away, but I can't go far. Not with this wall imprisoning me. I find myself in the library. I fume for a few minutes before realizing I'm not alone. A pregnant girl is browsing the shelves her fingers gently tracing the book spines. She's young, barely 20 years old. She has beautifully flawless, creamy white skin and wide-set Disney princess eyes. She is one of those women who barely gain weight during pregnancy. I genuinely believe she's secretly carrying a watermelon under her conservative green blouse. I've seen her once before, on my death day, when the elevator door opened to the fourth floor and the shrill cries of the first poor soul who found my body brought her rushing from her apartment to investigate. Her eyes had widened in terror as they beheld my corpse crumpled at the bottom of the elevator. Now, she's browsing through the shelves, an almost serene expression on her features. She putters around the mystery titles, carefully sliding out books and reading the jacket sleeves she has good taste she carefully selects three mystery thrillers that i can personally attest are quite good though out of date sadly i haven't been able to read books in this genre in the last couple of years i used to love mysteries before my life became one She hums quietly as she heads to the elevator bay. I'm pleased when it is my elevator that greets her. There is something about this girl that I like. I think we could have been friends. If I hadn't been so afraid of the unknown, maybe in another lifetime. The elevator begins its gradual voyage to the fourth floor. I continue to study the girl. Her green blouse is buttoned all the way to the base of her neck, and she wears a pair of ugly, but comfortable-looking, stretch pants. I can't help but feel that she and Sabrina should become friends. She would help the socialite overcome her loneliness, and Sabrina would, in turn, help her with her crimes against fashion. Not that I'm one to talk. I will spend the rest of eternity in a plain gray wool sweater and jeans that I chose for comfort over style. On the fourth floor, the girl skips to her apartment door, surprisingly agile for someone who must be at least seven months pregnant. This only supports my suspicion that she's not pregnant, but carrying a large fruit strapped to her belly. Her husband is waiting in the living room when she enters. He mutes the television which is playing the hockey game. The Maple Leafs are down by two goals, and it's only the first period. There are some things that never change. Hi, Oliver, the girl says. Where have you been? Oliver asks, prying his eyes from the screen. I went downstairs to find some books. Don't you have enough books already? He laughs and gestures toward the bookcase, There are a measly two shelves, with less than seven books in total. Oliver follows his wife's gaze to the bookshelf and shrugs. Did you find anything good? She nods. Yep, a mystery by Mary Higgins Clark. Oliver frowns. You know I don't like it when you read that kind of book. I know, but they didn't have anything else, she lies. Oliver's eyes narrow ever so slightly. He gets off the couch and steps toward her. He snatches the book from her hand and flips through it. She flinches when he slams it shut. Oliver raises his eyebrows and laughs. What is it, Melody? Why are you so nervous? It's just a book. He shoots her a charming smile. But there's something missing in his hollow eyes. A look of warmth or a spark of compassion. Love. A familiar chill creeps down my spine. You're right, it's just a book, she says. But her feigned indifference sounds forced, even to me, a complete stranger. Oliver closes the distance between them and gives her a hug. He lets go abruptly, then returns to his spot on the couch. He turns the volume back on and continues to watch the game. Melody places her books on the shelf. She casts a glance back at her husband before slipping into the kitchen. Out of his line of sight, she slouches against the wall, cradling her stomach between delicate hands. I follow, but not before glancing back into the living room. There's something off about Oliver. Both the way he reacted to Melody's reading selection and her fearful reaction seemed strange. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's just aggravated by the Leafs losing. I begin to pace the length of the kitchen. There must be something I can do to help. I may be dead, but I'm still here. If only I can figure out how to interact with the world. There must be a trick to it. I put my hands on either side of the kettle, and I get ready to put all my energy into moving it. It's going to be okay, Melody whispers to her baby. We're going to be okay, Shane. I freeze. That whisper, I recognize it. Melody was the girl on the phone, the one who called the hotline, my last client. I worried that I'd never hear from her again, that I'd never have the chance to help her. I reach out to pat her shoulder, but my hand falls straight through. Melody doesn't react. She can't sense me. A heaviness settles into the pit of my stomach. I can't help her. I can't do anything. I am nothing but a ghost. 6. The moon has already staked her claim in the midnight sky when a strange man returns home to his second floor apartment. According to the tags on his suitcase, He just got off a flight from Las Vegas. He looks vaguely familiar, but I can't quite put a finger on where I've seen him before. I've never spotted him around the building, or I would remember, since I'd always taken care to record and scrutinize my interactions with fellow residents, especially the peculiar-looking ones. And this one is definitely peculiar-looking. He is tall, well over six feet, and reed thin. He looks to be in his late fifties, but his face bears no lines. His skin is loose and transparent. He reminds me of one of Madame Tussaud's waxwork creations, one that was left in the heat for so long it has begun to melt. A tiny silver skull pierces the top of his right ear. His left arm is tattooed from wrist to elbow with whirling designs, Celtic knots interwoven with Russian characters. The tattoo looks like a loose silk sleeve gently clinging to bone. He is bald, without a single hair on his head or arms. Despite the late hour, there's no stubble shadowing his chin. His height and extreme emaciation make him all sharp angles. Every movement slices through the air around him. By contrast, Elias appears short and round, though he is of average height and build. Elias trails behind this bizarre man, trying not to appear out of breath while dragging the large suitcase. They arrive at apartment 204, which is directly across the hall from my elevator. Elias produces a key and holds open the door. A bony finger flips the light switch, but the room remains cloaked in darkness. The walls are painted a matte black and the furniture seems to have been carefully selected, so not even a smidgen of color appears anywhere in the room. It's all black. I follow them into the belly of the beast. Where would you like your suitcase, Mr. Utkoff? Elias asks. He doesn't seem to be at all perturbed by the apartment's interior design. Perhaps he's used to Mr. Utkoff's idiosyncrasies. Or perhaps he's paid too much to care. On the bed, Mr. Utkoff waves a hand. Elias hurries to the bedroom and deposits the luggage on the bed. Mr. Utkoff tips him handsomely on his way out, which only seems fair because it is well after midnight, and I know Elias is up and at his station by six in the morning. Elias, who is ordinarily impeccably groomed, is wearing wrinkled slacks, and the buttons on his shirt are mismatched. I've noticed that he has been less presentable lately, and I begin to wonder about his personal life. It seems that everyone in this building has a persona that they reveal to the public, but their true selves only surface when they are alone, when they do not know they are being watched. When I was alive, I must have come across as aloof and unfriendly, when in reality, I was in hiding and terrified. I never realized until now that there are so many others hiding their own truths. Mr. Utkov heads into his office, which is also entirely black. All this darkness can't be good for his eyesight. This might explain the thin red rims that circle his sunken eyes. He sits in his plush leather chair and pulls out a cell phone. He puts it on speakerphone, rapidly dialing his voicemail and listens to his messages. Alexei, it's Carlos. Let me know how your pitch went in Vegas. I know they're going to love you, but give me a call when you get a chance. So, Alexei made a pitch in Vegas. I study him. He does look like he could have some kind of novelty show. I can easily picture him swallowing a sword or slicing a scantily clad woman into pieces, in front of a hushed crowd. The second message plays. Is this Mr. Rasputin? I was hoping to reach you. A colleague of yours gave me your number. I couldn't make it onto your finale show, and I was really disappointed. I would like to make an appointment for a seance. My wife died a few months ago, and I would give anything to contact her. The price is a little steep, though, but... I'm hoping that we can negotiate. Alexei presses delete, muttering under his breath about idiots getting his personal number. Rasputin. Now I remember how I know him. He's the cable television medium who contacts lost loved ones for a fee. Luke is obsessed with his show. He watches it every night, and he would call me at least twice a week to rant about how mysterious Rasputin is, and to tell me about the people he's helped to move on from their grief. It was amusing how Luke was torn between believing in the supernatural and thinking that Rasputin was some kind of an eccentric genius. Despite how adamant Luke was about how it's the best show on television, I've never caught an episode. Rasputin's show was canceled last month. To say that Luke was upset would be putting it mildly. I'd almost caved and invited him over. Almost. I'd had no idea that Rasputin lived in my building. A medium. Right here within my reach. I embrace the first glimmer of hope I've felt since long before my death. I open my mouth to speak, but I am torn back into the elevator. No! No! I punch my fist against the wall, but my hand simply slides through without a sound or the slightest bit of resistance. I feel nothing but the helplessness that threatens to overwhelm me. Just as I was about to communicate with someone for the first time since my death, I am pulled away. What did I ever do in my life to deserve this torment in death? The elevator doors glide open to reveal the basement corridor but nobody is there. There is nothing more irritating than someone who presses the button for the elevator then decides to take the stairs. While this was just a mild inconvenience when I was alive, now it is much more than a nuisance. I need to get up to the second floor. I have to try to communicate with Alexei or Rasputin or whatever his name is. If I can talk to him... Maybe he can help me figure out what I'm supposed to be doing with my afterlife. There has to be more to death than just riding an elevator up and down, up and down for all eternity. I turn to the elevator panel. I gather all my energy and focus on pressing the two button. It doesn't light up. I try again. Nothing. Frustration bubbles up inside me. This is not my first attempt at moving the elevator, but the disappointment cuts through me as strongly as if it were. If I could move the elevator, my life—well, death—would be so much easier. The elevator doors open again. I'm still on the basement level, but no one is waiting. No one is there to push the button. The elevator doors don't close. They stay open well past the time they should have defaulted to shut. This isn't normal. With a shiver, I realize that I haven't been down to the basement since my death. The elevator rarely idles down here. I poke my head out the yawning doorway, but no one is in sight. I laugh at the absurdity of it all. I have nothing to fear. I'm dead. Even if the man who killed me returns to the scene of the crime, he can't hurt me anymore. The worst has already happened. I step off the elevator and into the narrow hallway. The doors creep shut behind me. There is nothing in the basement but storage units, the fitness center, and the basement-level parking garage. I dip my head through the wall to peer into the garage. There isn't a soul in sight. Before I turn away, I catch a glimpse of my battered and dusty Toyota, unused and neglected for so long that I almost feel sorry for whoever has to deal with it. I return inside and float across the hall to peek through the glass window of the fitness center's door. It's empty. I almost enter the fitness center, but something keeps me from leaving the narrow hallway. I turn back. It seems Different, somehow. The glamour and vitality that is prevalent in the rest of the building is noticeably lacking down here. The dim overhead light casts dark, angular shadows in the corners. I don't remember the basement being this shabby when I was alive. The carpet is a faded rust color. The busy paisley wallpaper is yellowing in the corners. The ornate bronze wall sconces are dull. The nearest light bulb flickers. A faint scent of stale air tickles my nose. With a start, I realize this is the first time I've smelled anything since my death. Where is the scent coming from? Everything looks faded from the other side, hazy and surreal. But this looks different, run down, frayed, uncared for. My eyes are drawn to the door at the end of the hall. I don't know why. I don't hear anything. I don't see anything. But I know that someone is in there. I drift down the hall, not even conscious of the decision to move. I plunge into the room beyond the metal door. The storage room is dark, with only the red-tinged glow of the exit sign illuminating the space. I stand in an even narrower corridor, lined with large chicken wire, enforced enclosures. The smell is stronger here, like mold with a sour, metallic scent. The shadowy outlines of the contents of each storage unit border the path before me. I move deeper into the center, following the path, traveling its twists and bends. Most of the storage units are full, stuffed haphazardly with boxes, oversized Christmas decorations, and the occasional set of winter tires. A bald and naked store mannequin with a painted face leans toward me on my left. Who would even keep that? I shake my head and continue to scan the shadows, until my eyes settle on a dark form huddled in the corner against the furthest wall. It looks like a small child standing in the corner as punishment. I take a tentative step forward. The scent grows stronger. As I edge closer, the figure's details come into focus. It's a little girl wearing a red and white gingham dress. Her long brown hair is tied back into two messy braids. She still faces the corner swaying slightly in her petite Mary Jane shoes. There is something different about her. She isn't blurred and indistinct like the rest of the world. She is crystal clear. I inch closer still until there is less than two feet separating us. She doesn't seem to sense me, not like I sense her. What am I doing? I should leave. I should get out of here. Instead, I say, Hello? Inhumanly fast, she spins around, but her feet never move. Just now, I notice she is floating several inches above the ground. Like me. She looks up. I lurch backward, gagging at the sight coupled with the realization that the overwhelming stench was rotting flesh. She has no eyes. Her face has two empty sockets where her eyes should be. Two large, gaping holes carved deep into her skull. Not a moment too soon, I feel the tug of the elevator. For once, I welcome it. Seven. I have avoided returning to my apartment since my death. This has been difficult, considering the number of police officers who have been traipsing in and out during the three days following my murder. Now I stand by the idling elevator, willing for someone to call it away. I need to return to the second floor to see the medium, especially now that I know I'm not the only spirit haunting this building. Most of the second-floor residents prefer to take the single flight of stairs over the elevator, so I only had a twenty-second window this morning, during which I barely made it to Alexei's bedside before I was torn away. I need to be patient, but patience has never been one of my virtues. When I was alive, I was always on the move, seamlessly flowing between activities, never idling, never stopping never allowing myself time to think, to remember. Now, I have nothing to do. There's nothing I can do but watch as others live their lives at a snail's pace, not appreciating how little time they have left. With all this free time on my hands, my mind often wanders to dark places. It takes all my focus not to remember my life before my husband, his death, how it was all my fault. The numbness that overcame me when I died has finally worn off. I'm beginning to think it was just shock, if ghosts can even feel shock. After my encounter in the basement last night, my nerves are frayed, and I feel a familiar weight on my chest— Along with the fear that a panic attack could be waiting for me right around the corner. I feel almost human again, except for the maddening fact that I cannot interact with anyone or anything. My strongest feeling is regret. I regret having holed myself up for nine months. I regret not making friends in this city. I regret pushing Luke away. I regret not letting him come over that night, because then I wouldn't be here now, dead. I regret spending most of my waking hours working, building a fat savings account that's useless to me now and will likely just finance my brother-in-law's addictions. I regret staying trapped in a prison of my own making, and now that I am truly imprisoned, there is nothing I want more than freedom. Yesterday, the police finally finished their investigation of my apartment. They found nothing of consequence. However, they did get ludicrously excited when they discovered my registered gun. It was tucked away in my bedside table, nestled between anti-aging cream and a book of poetry. A lot of good it did me there. At least they were able to identify my body and notify my in-laws. I changed my name when I moved to Toronto but it didn't take the police too long to figure out who I was. The police had found the legal document I left in my desk drawer, stating that in the event of my death, everything would go to Jay's parents. I had hoped that my in-laws would come, and they still might. They were the closest I've had to family in a long time. My parents died in a car crash when I was 17, a horrible accident caused by a drunk driver who left me orphaned. I push aside these memories. Instead, I focus on the present. I am dead and trapped, but there must be something I can do, something to ease the tedium of the afterlife. There must be a reason I'm stuck in this purgatory. According to nearly every movie or book about ghosts, I must have unfinished business. But what could that be? most obvious possibility is that i must identify my killer and somehow avenge my brutal murder i already know who killed me so it cannot be that difficult he must have found me he called the crisis hotline to mock me and terrify me before he finally killed me i feel stupid for having left my apartment that night i made myself vulnerable and I deserved to die for it. However, he is patient. He would have eventually caught up with me. The door to my apartment is propped open. I wonder if the police aren't quite finished yet, I sigh. What more could they possibly expect to find? I push forward to investigate. A large black duffel bag holds the door open, I can tell it isn't a police issue because it has no TPS logo on it. There are a couple of cardboard boxes stacked in the foyer. Confused, I frown down at them. It looks like someone is moving in, not packing my belongings to move me out. The other elevator door dings, and a man steps out carrying a large cardboard box that hides his face. He stumbles over the duffel bag. I reach out to help him before I remember. I hesitate. There is something about him that looks very familiar. His hair color, the contour of his shoulders. He turns around, surveying my apartment. His strong jawbone, soft blue eyes, Grecian nose. I am overcome with an unsteadiness that has nothing to do with the elevator. I recognize this man. I know him. But this is impossible. He's my dead husband. August 26th Dear Diary, Ghosts don't exist. At least that's what I told Jay when he was making an argument for going on a haunted walk downtown— He was convinced that it was a perfect date opportunity. I was convinced that it was a perfect waste of time. However, I felt guilty because we hadn't had time for a date night since our wedding. I've been working overtime, trying to make up for taking a week off for my honeymoon and to remind my control freak boss that I'm an invaluable asset to the company. Jay and I have just finished the move into our newly purchased house— and we've been spending most of our free time unpacking. Well, Jay unpacked while I sat on the couch, snacking on pretzels and giving him contradictory instructions. So we ended up going on the haunted walk. It was a little embarrassing because we were surrounded by goth teenagers and ogling tourists. We didn't quite fit in, but I knew I had to tough it out for Jay. Jay. The walk was actually kind of interesting at first. The guide told us spooky stories about people who threw themselves into the Rideau Canal for no apparent reason. We learned that Chateau Laurier is extremely haunted, and I'm glad none of those spirits showed up for our wedding reception. What do you even serve a ghost? Bloody Marys? Deviled eggs? By the time the tour progressed to the Bytown Museum, It was fully dark, and I was starting to get a little antsy. Anytime something moved in my peripheral vision, my skin began to crawl, and I would spin around, fists at the ready. Because fists can protect you from an evil ghost. It usually ended up being one of the other people on the tour, or a feisty squirrel soaring out of a garbage can. Long story short, by the time we got home to our newly purchased two-story house, I was absolutely freaked out. I usually avoid watching horror movies or anything remotely creepy. I claim it's because I don't believe in the supernatural, but it's actually because that stuff freaks me the hell out. I spent the rest of the night in the office, fact-checking and shrieking when discovering the ghost stories were true. Jay eventually gave up on trying to seduce me. He went to the bedroom and watched an episode of Game of Thrones. I'm still peeved that he didn't wait to watch it with me. I finally got around to finishing the thank you cards for the wedding gifts last night. So not sleeping after the ghost walk had its advantages. Apparently, it's classy to write them by hand, which is an archaic way of thinking, but I didn't want to offend anyone. So, my hand is still cramped from using muscles I haven't exercised that vigorously since elementary school. I apologize, dear diary, if my writing becomes illegible at any point. Jay and I received a lot of Scrabble themed gifts. I guess that's the problem when you have an epic Meat Cute and you insist on telling and retelling it to anyone who will listen. My bad. We got a Scrabble blanket. K&J mugs and assorted dishware, towels and little throw pillows for our couch. I don't know why we bothered to register when it's clear that nobody intended to even look at the gift list. I honestly don't know what we're going to do without a gravy boat. I guess our gravy will have to sail the high seas on a raft. Seriously, what is a gravy boat? Cindy insisted we needed one and I just agreed so we could get out of the store as quickly as possible. I had a hankering for Froyo, and there was a Menchies next door. Well, I have digressed from the true reason why I am writing in this journal. As I mentioned before, Jay and I just moved into a new house we bought downtown, just a few blocks from the Byward Market. It's an old house with a lot of character. Gorgeous, original crown moldings, hardwood floors, and only a few renovations required. It even has a clawfoot bathtub, which was the major selling point for me. Don't tell Jay. So anyway, last night I discovered that the house is haunted. Eight. The woman with no past stands at the window, her breath condensing against the cold, hard glass. The room is dark. The only illumination comes from the city lights, which filter through the grimy window. Her eyes remain vacant and impassive, despite the bustle of cars below and the sound of sirens in the distance. She wears an oversized gray knit shirt and a pair of darker gray pants. I can't be certain, but I think they are the same clothes she wore the last time I saw her. Without warning, She turns and goes to her bedroom, which is furnished with bleached white furniture matching that from the living room, colorless and utilitarian. She swings open the door to the walk-in closet. My barrier doesn't allow me to follow her into the bedroom, but I can see from my position just outside the bedroom door that her closet is filled with clothes, many made with bright, vibrant fabrics. I cannot imagine her wearing them. She sheds the gray, letting her shirt and pants fall to the floor. I can count her ribs from across the room. She is too thin, almost emaciated. She enters the closet and selects a dress without much deliberation. It is a floor-length gown, formerly midnight blue, but faded from age. She slips it over her head, the silk embracing her skeletal figure, The hem has frayed along the base of the dress, and tiny tendrils of thread escape the fabric in little wisps, giving her an ethereal appearance. She stands at the vanity and twists her dull, dark hair into a bun, which she fastens with a tarnished silver clip. She applies a thick coat of red lipstick, which only serves to accentuate her skin's grayish hue. She fails to color within the lines, and the result is a clownish grin, macabre and unsettling. She applies a single swipe of thick blue eyeshadow to the whole of her lids. She looks like a child playing with mother's makeup, pretending to be something she is not. The woman turns and walks through me, leaving a chill in her wake. I gasp. I haven't felt anything or anyone from the other side before. What does this mean? I hurry to catch up to her. I find her standing in the dark living room, watching, waiting. But for what? Music begins to play. An old song from another time, an era with ballroom dancing and romantic courting. I look around, but I cannot identify the source of the music. The woman with no past starts to move, swaying gently to the music. Her limp arms extend, and she reaches out to an imaginary dance partner. She begins a waltz, spinning around the room in perfect time to the music. Somehow, she manages to avoid every piece of furniture without looking down or removing her empty gaze from the point right in front of her. It is only now that I realize that the music, while haunting in quality, doesn't have the typical echoic resonance of sounds from the other side. It plays smooth and unhindered. Every chord reaches my eardrums unimpeded by the thin veil that separates our worlds. This music is spiritual in origin, but the woman, with her hazy appearance, is most definitely alive. Not a ghost like the little girl with no eyes. If she can hear the music, maybe she can hear me. I open my mouth, but fear engulfs me. Not a word comes out. This woman is mad. She waltzes around the room, limp arms extended like those of a marionette, her expressionless, painted face glowing in the faint light. I leave. My husband never spoke much of his twin brother. Jay was kind hearted, but he didn't suffer fools or swindlers, and according to him, his brother was both. The elevator has finally returned to the seventh floor, and I'm surprised to discover that Jay's twin is still here. Will stands in my living room, perusing my bookshelves, likely looking for anything he can sell. Well, I don't have any designer shoes, silverware, or first edition books. And the sooner he realizes this, the sooner he can leave. The sooner I can stop being reminded of my dead husband. After the initial shock of seeing him had worn off, I began to notice the little differences between Will and my husband. His face is thinner, slightly drawn, which is likely a result of the heavy drug use. I cannot believe that his parents allowed him to come here, to rifle through my things like it's a Sunday afternoon at the flea market. They're aging, but they could have sent someone to pack up my things, like an estate agency or a friend from my past. Anyone but him. I drift toward the three cardboard boxes Will brought into my apartment. I worry that he plans to fill them with the spoils of my death. Right now, He's focused intently on my shelves, taking each book down and carefully leafing through. Looking for a little light reading, I ask. Get out of my house! Of course, he doesn't react. He continues to methodically examine each book. Once he finishes, he goes into my office and begins to rummage through my desk drawers. I'm reminded of the night I died. I'd searched these desk drawers for my diary to take with me on the run, but in my hysteria, I couldn't find it. It looks like it really isn't in here. But where could it be? I can't help but feel a tinge of relief that it's missing. I don't want Will to read about the darkest time in my life, when his brother's light was snuffed out. They might not have been close, but I wouldn't want him to have to endure the heartbreak of reading about his brother's death. I shove these thoughts aside as Will moves toward the filing cabinets. I watch as he proceeds to read each file on clients from cover to cover. He takes a battered notebook from his back pocket and scrawls illegible notes. My curiosity is piqued. What's he doing? He groans when he realizes that I have a lot of files, I meticulously recorded all my client interactions, whether they be salary negotiations, instructions, or payments. In my previous life, I was a translator working for an Ottawa-based company that handled medical contracts from across Canada. After I escaped to Toronto to get away from my husband's murderer, I went freelance. Cooped up in my apartment with nothing else to do, I spent most of my waking hours working and built quite a nest egg for myself i sincerely hope that will won't get to see any of it he bites the end of his pencil a mannerism that is startlingly familiar the sight of this rips open old wounds memories flood back jay sitting at the kitchen table working on a new york times crossword puzzle the crinkle in his brow as he chews the pencil struggling to solve the final clue I watch him while eating dry cereal. I toss pieces at him to get his attention. He doesn't even notice. His focus is resolute. His face breaks out into a huge grin when he fills in the last letters. He looks at me, then tosses a piece of cereal back at my face. He had noticed after all. I dodge, giggling as it barely misses. No. I construct a mental dam to hold back the flood. I cannot remember. It's too painful. I embrace the call of the elevator and the sensation of being pulled away, away from the painful reminder of lives lost. All hope is gone. Alexei sits on his black leather couch, browsing the internet on his phone with the TV turned low. I have tried everything imaginable, but I cannot reach him. I haven't even been able to make him glance up from his cell phone screen. I screamed insults at the top of my lungs. I waved my hands in front of his face. I even played punching bag with his silky bald head. But nothing has worked. I wish I'd listened to Luke more closely when he talked about the show, I do remember that he told me that Rasputin required certain tools to communicate with the dead. Rasputin couldn't just conjure up and chat with ghosts, not like other television mediums. He needed to hold actual seances, which, I suppose, added to the atmosphere and perceived authenticity of his show. I hover by the couch where Alexei is now watching the news, I catch part of a story about my murder investigation. Apparently, the police are following leads, but they won't reveal much else to the public. Alexei quickly changes the channel, apparently disinterested in valuable information about a murder in his building. Instead, he puts on a local TV medium's late-night show. From the look of it, this woman is the reason why Alexei's show was canceled. She's warm and charismatic. She comforts the grieving and encourages them to move on. Alexei is cold and uncaring, and I understand the loss of appeal and the subsequent drop in numbers once this woman's show premiered last fall. People go to mediums for more than just to communicate with the dead. They want to be comforted. They want to be assured that their brother or mother or husband is in a better place. I cannot picture Alexei fulfilling this need. I wonder if Luke is watching this new show right now. Does he like it? Will he be as obsessed with this woman as he was with Alexei? I sigh. I suppose I'll never know. The phone rings and Alexei jumps to his feet. Hello, he says, excitement making his accent thicker. He's silent for a moment. His face falls. I have plans to give the show pizazz as you call it. He is interrupted. His face develops crimson splotches as he listens. All right. Goodbye, then. Alexei throws the phone across the room. It bounces off the couch and clatters to the floor. Hands clenched in fists. He paces the large living room, his spindly legs only requiring four strides for each lap. His eyes are alight with fury. After several minutes, he stops abruptly. He retrieves his phone and speed dials someone. It is Alexei. Find that man who wanted to commune with his wife. Give him my address and make an appointment for Friday at midnight. I am doing the seance. Nine. This morning, the elevator is summoned to the ninth floor, where it idles patiently. One of the only residents I willingly interacted with when I was alive lives on this floor. A fellow widow, Dr. Sylvie Favreau, is a cardiac surgeon at the Toronto General Hospital. When I explained my predicament to her, she instantly became my personal physician, for a small fee. She was relatively understanding of my condition, although she frequently suggested I see a psychologist. She thought I needed desensitizing to release my fears of the outside. I never told her the true reason for my phobia, so she believed that I was a born agoraphobic. But I wasn't born this way. I was made. Dr. Favreau is standing at the kitchen stove, cooking bacon and an omelet for herself and her son, Etienne, to share. Her son has always been quiet which I assumed was because he is shy and soft-spoken. But I'm surprised to see that he is still quiet in the privacy of his own home, with no one but his mother to hear him. He's sitting at the table, staring at his empty plate as his mother hovers by the stove. She prattles away in French about work, her plans for the day, and the incompetent anesthesiologist who recently transferred from Saskatchewan a patient began to rouse mid-surgery, and the hospital is possibly facing a lawsuit because of it. I imagine what it would be like to slowly regain consciousness on the operating table, feeling the slice of a knife through the flesh of my stomach, hearing the nurses chatter away about their boyfriends and manicures as they hand the doctor more instruments of torture, seeing a gaggle of probing eyes from the viewing gallery as Toronto General Hospital is a medical school and there would be many interns and residents observing the operation, watching the doctor's bloodied hands plunge deep into your abdomen, feeling the shifting organs and hearing the sloshing and snipping, the slick feel of gloved hands caressing your organs, the scent of your bowels permeating the air. I shake away these thoughts as Sylvie plops sizzling bacon onto her son's plate. The boy mumbles a merci, maman, and starts to eat. He cannot be more than nine years old, but I am impressed by his dexterity with a knife and a fork. He cuts open the western omelet with precision. He doesn't drop any of the slippery egg onto his lap. He is clearly his mother's son, and he might consider surgery as a future profession if he can overcome his staggering shyness, of course. I watch as they eat their eggs in stilted silence. Sylvie is no longer talking. After she finishes eating, she gets up from the table and leaves the room, and Etienne quietly loads the dishwasher and wipes down the kitchen table. I trail after Sylvie. I find her in the spare bedroom, which is windowless and dark, A large medical cabinet sits against the far wall, with a wheelchair folded up beside it. My eye is drawn to the center of the room, where a hospital bed is set up. A heart monitor beeps quietly from the corner, the faint glow of a jagged line cutting across the screen. A man lies in the bed. His eyes are closed, and he looks to be in a peaceful dreamland, far away from the horrors of this world. He has an intubation tube protruding from his thin, pale lips. Sylvie replaces his IV bag, moving quickly and efficiently. She has clearly become well-versed in this routine. As she is about to leave, she hesitates. She returns to his bedside and strokes the top of his head with the back of her hand. Raymond, she murmurs before planting a tender kiss on his cheek. She whispers something in his ear that I cannot make out. Raymond, the husband who died five months ago? I stare at the man on the hospital bed. Sylvie had told me that her husband had had a heart attack, but she didn't elaborate, and I hadn't pressed for details. But she had heavily implied that he was dead. This doesn't look like dead to me. Believe me, I know what dead looks like. Sylvie eventually exits the room, shutting off the lights behind her. The room is immersed in darkness. But Mr. Favreau and I are not alone. There is a figure in the corner of the room. Squinting in the dark, I see that it faces away from me toward the wall. It is a man gazing upward, staring at a large brown stain that has blemished the ceiling. This man is not clear. He doesn't have a crisp outline like the girl with no eyes. He appears slightly faded, as if he is trapped between this world and the next. Every inch of me screams that I should run away, but instead I creep closer. I discover the cause of his indistinct appearance. He is vibrating, shaking at an inhuman speed. He stands perfectly still, save for his incessant shuddering. He continues to stare at the stain. He doesn't know I'm here, and I'm not sure if I want to attract his attention. I follow his gaze upward. The stain is not stagnant. It seems to shift and grow, churn and writhe as I watch it. It is mesmerizing. A strange sensation overcomes me. And I begin to shudder. No! I tear my gaze away from the hypnotic discoloration in the ceiling. I don't understand it, but I know that it must be making this man this way. I step closer and place my hand on his shoulder, but his violent vibration shakes me off and I fly across the room. But not before I catch a glimpse of his face. It's Raymond Favreau, Sylvie's husband. 10. Late that evening, I haunt the lobby, resting on one of the wing chairs that I've yet to see being used by a living soul. I wonder if that is why they look so pristine. Is there an unwritten rule that they should be looked at but not touched? I've spent the better part of the last hour counting the gold leaves in the wallpaper, but I keep losing count or losing my spot. The highest I've been able to reach was 350. A man wearing a tweed suit enters the building. He's quite unremarkable looking, with pallid skin and a hairline that has migrated far past his ears. He has one of those faces that the eye just passes over. If someone asked me to describe his features mere minutes after seeing him, I don't think I'd be able to do it. He rides my elevator up to the fifth floor and I follow him to his apartment, number 504, which is directly across from the elevators. He steps inside, closing and locking the door behind him. He doesn't turn on the light. Street lights shine in through the window, lighting his path as he places his briefcase on the plain brown coffee table. I look around the living room, if you could call it that. There is very little furniture. A single bookcase holds a single row of books. There's no television. I briefly wonder what this man does for entertainment, but I do not need to speculate for long. He takes off his tweed jacket and carefully folds it, placing it beside the briefcase. He rolls up his stiff, starchy sleeves and approaches the window. That's when I see it. He has a magnificent telescope. Sleek, black metal with many knobs and switches for adjusting clarity and scope. It sits on a tripod by the window, next to a rigid wooden chair. It is angled upward toward the stars beyond. I feel a pang of pity. He works late hours and comes home to a dark, empty apartment. His only friends are the stars, and I wonder if he has named them The man in tweed sits on his chair and grips the telescope, pressing his right eye to the lens. He lowers the body of the telescope until it is parallel to the ground, the wide end facing the apartment across the street. He does not move it, does not adjust it. He simply watches. I step closer and peer out the window. Across the way, the apartment's curtains are wide open. Living on the fifth floor must have falsely erased the occupant's privacy concerns. A young, blonde woman does stretches on a yoga mat in front of a large flat-screen TV. The man in Tweed is utterly immobile as he watches her. I cannot tell if he is even breathing. Disgusted, I attempt to slap him, but my hand sinks through his pasty cheek. I put all my energy behind a second slap, but the result is the same. Completely unaware of my presence, the man continues to watch. I want to run away, but I cannot leave. I cannot leave this vulnerable woman to this creep. Finally, she finishes her routine and exits the room, no longer in our line of sight. Relieved, I wait for the man in tweed to put away his telescope and call it a night. Instead, he remains resolute. He doesn't shift the telescope to scan the other lit windows for another source of entertainment. He waits for the woman to return. I step back, a heavy feeling in the pit of my stomach. I'm not much better than him. Here I am, watching from a distance— families and couples utterly unaware of my prying eyes. I tell myself that I'm different. This isn't my choice. I have no choice. That's what I tell myself. I drop down to the fourth floor. My range on this floor is quite limited because the elevator still idles on the story above. I check on apartment 407. Melody is alone. According to the calendar that hangs in the kitchen, her husband is at Cliff's for poker night. Melody is in the bathroom, and I can hear the splash of water. She enters the kitchen and heads straight for the freezer, replacing one soggy ice pack with another. She turns, and I gasp when I see her face. A dark purple bruise has formed on her left cheekbone. She tenderly applies the ice pack to her face and winces at the sting. I circle her a few times. I see several older bruises on her arms, but nothing else that appears new. However, she is wearing a conservative nightgown, and I fear what might lie underneath. A tear trickles down her cheek. She wipes it away. She turns to the iPhone dock that hangs on the wall. She dials. Hello, may I speak to Rachel, please? Her voice quavers slightly. My heart drops. I'm right here, I say. I can hear the hotline operator's soothing voice. She no longer volunteers with us. I can put you in touch with one of our other helpers. Melody's face falls. No. Thank you. She ends the call. Slumping against the wall, she sinks down onto the cold, hard linoleum. I'm right here, I repeat. There's no answer, no indication that she can hear me. I sit beside her, and I place my hand near her shoulder, stopping a hair-breadth away. I can almost feel her warmth. I want her to stop crying. She needs to know she's strong enough to overcome this. She's strong enough to get the help she needs. Melody suddenly stops crying. Leaning heavily against the wall, she clambers to her feet. A resolute expression has formed on her face. Did she somehow receive my message? I would like to think so. She exits the kitchen, heading toward the bedroom. I wait, but she doesn't return.
0: We've met a lot of Rachel's neighbors in this episode, and in the next episode, we'll get to follow Rachel as she watches their stories unfold. What will we discover about the residents of Thorwald Place? Stay tuned to find out. So don't forget to subscribe to Camcat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you so much. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms, and our background episodes, where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet. Bye.